If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. With Uber Reserve, good things come to those who plan ahead. Family vacay? Reserve your ride as soon as you book your flights. To all the planners, now you can reserve your Uber ride up to 90 days in advance. See Uber app for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Few cities have a backstory quite as dramatic as Berlin, a metropolis that has been at the centre of events, including the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War, the rise of Nazism and the Cold War. Barney Whitespunner's latest book, Berlin, The Story of a City, relates the German capital's remarkable history. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizen, he discusses what makes this edgy, irreverent and fiercely independent city so enduringly fascinating. So, Barney, you served for several years with the British Army on the Rhine. And and, and as you write in the book, you've been visiting Berlin since the 1970s. I guess my first question is, what was it about your experiences of the city over the past four or five decades that that made you want to write a book about its history? Because it had such a huge impact on me as a young man. So I joined the British Army at university. Uh, I was pretty naive, as I guess we all were, sort of wet behind the ears, you could say. And one of the first things I did in the army was to uh, take the British military train. It was one of those means of getting to Berlin from West Germany, across the German border, obviously. Um, as I'm sure listeners are aware, Berlin was an island in East Germany, so you had to get from West Germany um, to that island, if you like. And taking the train uh, across the inner German border, um, and that in itself was a fairly scary experience. Uh, with its it, its barbed wire, its watchtowers, its concrete, um, it, 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 its mass of guards. 
uh, and then going through East Germany and then coming into this perimeter of, of Berlin, going in again through the same sort of setup, because, of course, the, although the wall divided Berlin east to west, it also went around West Berlin, so it screened off West Berlin from East Germany. Uh, and again, you have the same thing. So the train stopped, it was searched, and you went in, from this really extraordinary sort of Stalinist grey, really rather terrifying world into this blaze of light and life, which was West Berlin. Uh, and it was an amazing, amazing experience. And then actually in Berlin itself, going from west to east, west again with everything going on with its culture, with it, I'm not the easiest place in, in many ways for West Berliners to live, but you know, still um, considerably better, obviously, than the east. Um, and then going through Checkpoint Charlie, going across Checkpoint Charlie, going to Friedrichstrasse, and going again from this extraordinarily vibrant, lively West Berlin into a grey world, uh, and people shuffled up Friedrichstrasse in sort of rather shabby clothes looking behind them. Uh, there were bullet holes in the building still. There was a checkpoint at Checkpoint Charlie itself, you know, which was uh, in, in itself very threatening. And you got this sort of feeling of real depression, of real gloom. And as a young man, that just had enormous impact on me. And I reckon it's one of the most educational things that I did. I mean, yeah, okay, one's meant to be educated at school and university. Um, I think, as we all know, education really comes from your experiences. Uh, and it had a very deep experience on me. And I got fascinated by Berlin. And the second thing that made me wanted to write the book was that, and um, I, I'm very fond of Germany, got a lot of German friends. Uh, a lot of Germans said to me, why are all the books written about um, German history always about the Nazis or the Cold War? Why doesn't anybody write about German history beforehand? You know, here is this extraordinary culture. Yes, something went very badly wrong um, in Germany. We know that between 1933 and certainly 1945, arguably then you know, in parts of Germany right up to 1989. But actually, there is a German history before that. There's a story to Germany. There's a Germany that's produced all this fantastic culture, this wonderful language, you know, this glorious architecture. Why does nobody ever write about that? Why does nobody ever tell the story, extraordinary story of Berlin? And it is, it's such a unique story. It's such an un-German story, actually, in many ways. So um, I, I wanted to put the two things together. Now, you begin the, the prologue to the book by quoting Goethe's observation that you have yeah. to be a tough customer <laughs> and a, a little yeah. rough around the edges to keep your head yeah. above the water in Berlin. Yeah. That seemed to be a, a a real theme of the book to me, that, that Berlin is a little edgy, is a little rebellious, irreverent, sometimes even dangerous. I mean, yeah. Why do you think that's the case? Berlin und Villa, yeah. Berlin, I'm here, they're bullshit Berlin. Um, I think it's always been the case. Um, and I think it's it probably originates from the fact that Berlin was a trading um, a trading post. There's no logical reason for Berlin actually to be there, like there is arguably for Paris or London, because of its situation. I mean, it was effectively started, which is extraordinary, sort of two fishing villages, because it was on the trade, the trade routes that crossed Europe east to west and north south. It, from the very earliest days, literally the very earliest days, it attracted an immigrant population, and it attracted its own sort of independent character. It wasn't necessarily a Brandenburg town when it was a capital. Brandenburg. It wasn't certainly wasn't a Prussian town when it was the capital of Prussia, and it very yeah, it, it wasn't. Um, it was very anti 
um, for example, the Nazis. Um, actually, I think now it is a very German time. We can come back to that. So it's always had that independent character. Um, Berliners have always been themselves and not Prussians, um, not Germans necessarily. Uh, and that's given them a sort of sense of, of, of their own identity. And it's made them resistant to authority. So Berlin actually has... Um, had four, um, well, five revolutions. Four haven't worked, uh, 1447, 1848, 1918, not, but very sadly 1953, which um, not many listeners will now remember, but will obviously know about. Um, it wasn't really until 1989 when they tried to have a peaceful revolution. It actually worked. Um, but it has always had this system to authority. And quite interestingly, although it was capital of Prussia, capital of Germany, the rulers of Prussia and Germany never actually liked living there. So although the Berliner Schloss, um, yeah, the Buckingham Palace equivalent's right in the middle, and that was, if you like, the, the royal seat. Uh, actually, the Hohenzollerns spent most of our time, the Hohenzollerns for German dynasty, spent most of our time building, um, admittedly, very agreeable palaces outside um, Berlin. But part of the reason for that is they want to be in Berlin itself. Um, and then, to Berlin's huge credit, Hitler loathed the place. Um, Berlin never evaded for him the way the rest of Germany did. Um, and uh, he spent as little time there as he possibly could as well. So it has, it's always had that sort of slightly bullshit, slightly independent character, which comes from its, from its very earliest days. And again, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is the thing which I find so fascinating about the city is that there's the early sort of trends which you can identify in the Middle Ages are still there today. That's a slightly independent Bolshevist, that incredible cultural diversity, that absolute tolerance of immigrants, which is you know, such a huge strength of a city. You also observe that Berlin has always been from as much an Eastern European city as a Western yeah. one. Um, and to quote you, you say it was, it's been shaped and subject to the winds and moods of the Great Plains mm. reaching towards the steppes. And how is how is this fact impacted on Berlin's history? Well, I think hugely. I mean, from the, again, from the very earliest days, uh, it was on the border of of Europe, if you like. It was on the mark, the march, as we say in English, but the mark is, is, is the German equivalent, the borderland. So it was the borderland um, originally of the empire, of the Hellenic Empire. It was the borderland of Christianity. Uh, and it, it is from its geographical you know, position. I mean, people tend to sort of think of Germany. I, I, th I think there's a tendency to think of Germany as sort of West Germany and the Rhine. Actually, we forget that Prussia extended right up um, you know, to, 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 to Königsberg, which was the capital of Prussia, um, before, before Berlin. And so until the beginning of the 18th century, um, Königsberg was Prussia's capital. Uh, and it, it was a, that huge expanse. And Berlin then was pretty well in the middle. Um, of course, now it's in very much to the, um, the, to the east. But I, I, I think there is a, there's a danger of seeing, or say danger, there's a tendency to see Germany as the Rhineland, to see Germany as, in terms of how we got used to seeing West Germany um, after, after 1945, with, with, with the German economic miracle, to see it in terms of Bavaria. Uh, and I, I think we actually forget that there is, there, there, there are Brandenburg, Saxony, these great, and Pomerania, the great German lands to the east, of which um, Berlin is part of. It's very, the other thing we should say interesting about Berlin is geographically, it's incredibly flat. 
um, you know, on the mains. And uh, I loved going by them by train. I mean, that goes back to that British military train, I told you, right? But um, it also goes back to the fact that um, you know, the airports in Berlin have been up in the air, um, forgive the pun. But, the, um, but um, I, lo- I love trains anyway. But I actually love approaching Berlin by train. And you cross and you, you, um, you cross the Elba and you go through this sort of extraordinary flat landscape and you, you get this feeling of going on and on into Russia, you know, if, 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 if you like. Um, but it, it, it has, a, it, it is, it is as much an eastern city as, as a western city. In cultural terms, it's probably more western. But in terms of geography, in terms of politics, and in terms of the things that influenced you know, the early Hohenzollerns, if you look at the early um, Thirty Years' War um, and the campaigns that, that follow, you know, there, there, the the Diagnog Austin, the the the, um, you know, the pull to the east is, is incredibly strong. Now, I always kind of assume that. It, it was inevitable that Berlin would regain its status as German capital following reunification in 1991. Yeah. But as you observe in the book, this was this was far from a fait accompli, wasn't it? And, yeah. it was, um, and due to the city's associations with Nazism and militarism, yeah. there was quite a lot of reticence, wasn't there, around yeah. Germany about making Berlin capital again? I mean, do you think that the city's reputation has been kind of unfairly tarnished by by the by the episodes of the 20th century. Yes, I do, totally. And it goes back to what we were just talking about, about this sort of Berlin bolsheviks. Because the great thing about Berlin is, although it was nominally the capital, or well, was the capital of, of, of Brandenburg, then the capital of Prussia, and then the capital of Germany, um, it was never a Prussian or, or, or German city. It's always been the most individual um, city. It's always been the one, if you like, which has sort of opposed to those revolutions I was talking about, um, the regime. So to think of it as being the sort of seat of Prussian militarism is completely wrong. Actually, you know, the opposition, to, to, to a lot of the opposition to, 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 to Prussia, um, a, a lot of the beginning of a democratic movement, which actually became a very left-wing movement. If we look at the Berlin politics at the end of the 19th century, it's pretty left-wing. Um, you know, the, the, the left-wing parties have a, have a majority in, in, in the Berlin Assembly um, by, by the early 20th century. So, it's a mistake. And again, you know, with Hitler, and Berlin is the, the city that suffers worst of almost all German cities, except possibly very sad places like, like Dresden, from Hitler's war. But actually, it's Berlin which is most anti-Hitler. And again, you look at the, the opposition, the Widerstand to, to, to Hitler, actually an awful lot of that is coming um, from Berlin. So it's a mistaken identity. And I think um, it goes back to you know, those, some would say, the very earliest interpretations of German history. There are two Germanies, some people would say. I don't. But but some historians say there is a Germany that is between the Rhine and the Elba. That is, was civilised by the Romans. That is West Germany. That is, if you like, the, the, the sort of cosy Rhineland that we were talking about. And then there is the savage sort of bestial Germany beyond the Elba. And Adenauer, the great you know, post-war chancellor of Germany, would always said when he crossed the Elba, he used to shut his eyes because he reminded him he was going into Asia, which is a fairly strange thing to say. But then the Berliners never liked Adenauer much either. But the um, So you have this idea of the two Germanies. And so that debate in the the Bundestag, you know, the people who wanted to keep the capital in Bonn, is very much reflective of that. But what I think is so interesting um, is how Berlin has sort of risen to that challenge. So nobody um, can say that 1989 was an easy 
reunification. It was very difficult. Um, it was very difficult politically for Germany and Europe, much more difficult, I think, than people realize. Uh, and for Berlin itself, it was very difficult because you had a whole population of East Berliners, an awful lot of people who'd given their whole lives, a lot of them, to a system. And they were slightly, in 1989, slightly said to them, well, your life's been wasted. I mean, actually, you know, what you should have been living is what we have in the West. Now, for most, from I'd say a majority, it really was a majority, you know, actually they were very relieved. The wall came down fairly obviously and, and, and everything that, that meant for them. Um, uh, travel, standard of living, e economy, political freedoms. Actually, there was a sort of hardcore who said, mm, well, yeah, actually, we did believe in, um, in what these German system was um, trying to do. Um, but they have... And, and for the first decades after after unification, you know, there was a slight sense of East versus West, of the West got the best jobs. I mean, the West German government wasn't frightfully good at giving jobs to ex-East German bureaucrats, which is, you know, something which arguably was slightly tactless. Um, the, 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 there was a feeling that actually the best housing rent obviously was in the West, the better jobs were in the West, that sort of East was a, a sort of poor relation. What Berlin's done, I think, quite fantastically well is address that. So when you go to the city now, you get the sense of a really unified city, uh, of a city that's really come together. Part of that is um, is, is the they have this wonderful saying in Berlin: a typical Berliner is somebody who's just arrived at the railway station. About part of it is this ability, this continuing ability. The city's always had to welcome people um, from all parts of the world and make them Berliners. But the second thing is they've been they've been very clever physically in that in how they rebuilt Berlin. Um, and I say rebuilt because, of course, after 1989, there was still an awful lot of War damage was still a, um, a lot of open space in the, in, in the city centre. Now, let me give you an example of that. The Berliner Schloss, which I talked about just now, the Hohenzollern seat, if you like, the equivalent of Buckingham Palace, that was um, badly damaged in the war, then flattened by the communists who put up a, um, depending on your perspective, but from my point of view, a, a particularly ugly sort of communist-type building, the Palace of the Republic. Um, that, in due course, uh, was flattened um, after 1989, largely because it was riddled with asbestos. What they've done now is they rebuilt the Berliner Schloss almost as it was, So this, which was in itself very controversial, not necessarily popular with a lot of modern architects. But they rebuilt the Schloss, but they haven't rebuilt it totally as it was, so they've kept the traditional facades, the wonderful facades, by Schluter, who was the um, 18th century architect who, who, who originally um, built it, um, facing out onto what's called the Lustgarten, those where the wonderful Berlin museums are, Museum Island and the cathedral, which has given Berlin a, a, a really um, wonderful centre again. But on the eastern side, they put a modern facade, which is faces onto the Alexanderplatz, which was the centre of old East Berlin. And if you go into the centre, it's literally just opened, actually. I was there last week, fun enough, in, 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 in the shop. So there's half a courtyard are modern and half are traditional. And they made it work quite incredibly well. Um, and um, Neil McGregor, who's a, 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 probably the unknown Berlin better, used to run the British Museum, um, has written um, so well about Germany, has this wonderful expression. He says that Berlin remembers through its buildings. And it's absolutely true. It does. So whereas a lot of cities that have been badly damaged or traumatized sort of try and rebuild themselves as they wish they might have been, as they sort of imagined they were, sort of heroic denial, if you like. Berlin doesn't. It's completely honest. It says, right, this is what's happened. We're going to reflect this in our building. So how many other cities in Europe would put something like a Holocaust memorial in a smack centre of the city, and perhaps one of the prime bits of 
you know, a, a real estate in the city. I mean, yeah, the Holocaust is quite undeniably the most ghastly thing that sort of probably happened in Europe in, in, in the last century. And of course, there's got to be a Holocaust memorial. But you know, so many cities would have tried to sort of ameliorate it in some way. But Berlin said, no, this ghastly thing has happened. We're going to, memorial, we're going to have a pop memorial, we're going to snap in the middle of a city. It's going to be there for everybody to see. And it's that sort of physical, as well as the, if you like, the sort of mental, the sort of psychological coming together, which I think has been incredibly well done. So, so this is a city that refuses to hide from its past then, essentially? Yeah, I, I, it, it does. And that's why, it, why, why I find it so fascinating. Um, and again, I guess that's part of, of it's it sort of being a, has it always been an immigrant city? Um, you know, people haven't got anything to hide. They've come, they've come to Berlin. They've made their lives there. Uh, and even what's extraordinary is even people whose um, were families were, you know, were, were murdered in the Holocaust, were victims of the Holocaust, have come back to live in Berlin again because they didn't sort of identify that attitude, that Nazi attitude with. Um, with Berlin. Berlin sort of rises above it. Um, and again, part of that is this huge um, cultural diversity that the city has. Uh, now, people will point to the 1920s always with that, and they point to the, you know, the era of Cabaret and, um, uh, and Marlene Dietrich et al. And that is you know, quite right in many ways. I have to say, 1920s actually was an absolutely miserable, horrible time with the average Berliner. Um, with all the economic woes and you know some sandwich between two pretty devastating wars, um, but uh, I mean it's taken because of Cabaret et al. Cabaret is about to be restaged actually in London, which would be fantastic. Um, but you know, it's been going on sort of much much longer than that. This enormous sort of cultural diversity, but you know, and, and German national nationalism, the idea of Germany as a nation, again that really takes root in in Berlin. Um, Marxism, yeah, Marx actually wrote this capital, like he wrote it in London, but I mean, the ideas came from, you know, the awful uh, deprivation he saw when he was living in Berlin in, in, in the 18, 1830s. You could, and the Reformation, again, the Reformation actually has its roots in Berlin's streets in, in the sale of indulgences, which it was to sort of sort out a Hohenzollern family issue that you know, Tetzel was selling indulgences in Berlin, but led um, Luther to, to, to go over the edge in Wittenberg. So, you know, all these cultural movements are there. It's always been this sort of culturally diverse place. And what fascinates me is why are these twin fishing villages on a fairly insignificant river, which the spray is? I mean, you know, the spray is a tiny little stream compared to the Elbow or the Oder or the Rhine or something. Where why why, why, why have they come to dominate the great sort of movements in Europe? Um, and it comes down to the people. It comes down to the, the population. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And Berlin never judges you. Berlin, you know, says, you're here, you're one of us, you're part of its extraordinary city, this extraordinary cultural experiment, this extraordinary tolerant, uh, wonderful, lively place. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard. The perfecter of the patio and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Now, as you've already mentioned, as you mentioned earlier, and as, as you've described in the book, Berlin has found itself on the kind of on the front line since its emergence a thousand or so years ago. And I, I, I was interested by the story you tell of the the end of the first millennium AD when it sat on the border between the Frankish Christian kings and and pagans to the east. And yeah. it didn't it didn't give up it didn't give up its paganism <laughs> without a fight, did it? I mean, I wonder if you could if you could tell us a bit about those turbulent early years. Yeah, I I love I, lo- I love that bit because um, it, it, we all uh, assume, I think, um, so that actually the spread of Christianity was inevitable and a wonderful force for civilizing Eastern Europe. Uh, and I think people forget that actually there were crusades going on. Uh, in uh, on the borderlands with um, pagan, um, well, let's say Russia, but I mean that just for ease of listeners identifying where it is. So let's say Eastern Prussia, Russia, um, as they were in the in 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 the Holy Land. Um, so it wasn't a, a foregone conclusion. Actually, it became so when. I mean, from Berlin's point of view, when they sort of got surrounded by, when Brandenburg got surrounded by other Christian countries. And um, finally, I think when the Poles went over, it was really what what did it for them, because then they were surrounded. Um, but I love the, the Wens, um, you know, who, um, who who worshipped trees and had their own sort of particular Wendish um, religion. Um, and actually, the Wendish influence stays in Berlin for for a long time, so a lot of the place names, um, you know, the 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 are and ik and is endings are actually come from Wendish. Um, the name Sven comes from the you know from the Wendish tree god, whose face was carved in, in, into trees. And lots of Germans probably don't know, but they're named to Wendish tradition. And actually, the um, Wendish um, Palabian was actually spoken um, allegedly, which I think it, it truthfully was. Um, in the areas around Berlin, right up until the last century, when, of course, you know, the Nazis appeared, anything which was quite so horribly reminiscent of Slavdom was immediately sort of got rid of uh, because it wasn't sort of purely Germanic. Um, but the, um, you know, the, the that idea, again, it, it's the same the same spirit of sort of independence, we like with Berlin and Villa. We are Wens, we are very happy worshipping trees. Um, and they came up with some wonderful um, sort of translations of the prayers the Christians tried to t- to, 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 um, to teach them um, to the fury of the bishops. They were sort of reinterpreted as, um, as, 
as, as, as tree worshipping prayers. Um, but that that was that same thing. You know, why should we? Just because the rest of Europe's getting Christian, well, why should we? We're, we're, we're very happy um, as we are. But eventually, you know, they have to give in, as I say, because they, they, they become surrounded by all the countries around become Christian. And then, but, but Christianity is always, Berlin is a reluctant Christian city. I mean, it must be the only city in in Europe, um, or any capital city, uh, that only got a cathedral in the um, in the end of uh, in the eighteen nineties, um, and then some would argue it wasn't the most successful, um, which I would probably agree with. Uh, so, and of course, having not been very a very Christian city, uh, you then get this period of of, of pietism. Um, and well, well, you have a, a Calvinist ruling dynasty and a, a Lutheran population, um, and then you you have partism, which it means effectively that people are much happier sort of conducting their religion privately, if you like. But with Berliners are never great ones for sort of great set piece religious performances, either either Lutheran or um, or, or obviously not um, not Catholic. You also write that Berlin has been uh, crucified twice in its life. First, during the Thirty Years' War, Mm. and then by the combined uh, bombing Mm. and Soviet invasion of the 1940s. Now, obviously, the latter, our listeners will know a great deal about. Mm. The former, less so. So, I mean, could you describe the the horrors that the Thirty Years' War inflicted on the city? I certainly could, and um, thank you for asking that. Uh, it, 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 it's because it's um, now, no, let's see, um, 400 years ago. But the Thirty Years' War was is still the most devastating war that's been fought in Europe. So it, it, it's more damaging, it kills more people, it does more damage to livelihoods, it takes longer to recover from uh, than the Second World War uh, in, 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 in comparative terms. I mean, obviously, total, total of more people killed in the Second World War, but actually proportionally. Um, the Thirty Years' War, it, well, it goes on 30 years, um, and from 1618-1648. Um, initially, Berlin and Brandenburg aren't too badly damaged, but from the 1630s on, uh, they suffer horribly from both the imperial forces, i.e. the Holy and Emperor's forces, uh, um, Tilly um, and, and Wallenstein, um, as they do from the, the Protestant forces, the, the, the Swedes, Gustavus Adolphus, who was actually a relation of, of, of the elector of Brandenburg. Um, what, uh, well, what's so interesting about Berlin is it's Berlin before 1618 is just beginning to sort of come to European prominence. So the Hohenzollerns have, um, are, are becoming Dukes of Prussia by, um, by marriage. Uh, the Economic decline of the 16th century as seaborne trade tended to, to favour Holland and, and England rather than the Hanseatic ports you know, is, is slightly is slightly changing. Um, yeah, there's um, agrarian depression, there's inflation, but you, you, Berlin is just sort of beginning to come of age when this awful event happens, uh, and a city that um, you know was 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 thriving is reduced to a few thousand people. Um, most of it, of course, it was a wooden city, so and most of it is destroyed. 
Uh, and there are the inevitable uh, plagues and suffering that come with armies, and actually it's disease, really, them, that actually kills them. It's a problem with armies then, is that they carry plague and other diseases with them. And the poor Berliners had uh, armies of both sides billeted on them um, from the best part of about 12 years. What is really interesting, Spencer, I think, is the psychological impact of a 30 years' war. And I think it's you know, the reason why it's so important to know about it um, and we all you know, it used to be a standard um, a standard school essay, didn't it? Where the thirty years was the thirty years war war of religion, which you know, so many school children have done. But actually, deeper than that, the psychological damage on Germany and the impact on Germany since I think has been profound. So this sort of sense of victimhood here we here we have a really society that was really beginning to thrive. You know, it was a comfortable, good life. It was a pretty tolerant life. In many places, obviously, after the Reformation, so many German princes adopted um, uh, the, the, the Reformed faith. Um, and all this has been destroyed for what? You know, why have we had to suffer like this? Why have we lost our families, our livelihoods? And actually, it takes um, Berlin itself, it really takes 50 years to recover. And it's one of the great German um, figures of history is the great elector, Frederick William. Um, and uh, Berlin and Germany are incredibly fortunate to have a man, a, a leader of his of his capacity um, in, the, in, in the aftermath of the war. But if you look at German literature since, look at um, Schiller you know, writing, almost the first thing he writes is about the Thirty Years' War. It's almost as if you have to understand the Thirty Years' War to understand how Germany thinks. And this sense of victimhood plays out, I think, right up to the Nazis, this idea that Germany has suffered. Germany has suffered unfairly. It's got to reach out. It's got to have, you know, it, 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 its space. Um, it's got to protect itself. And you look at you know, um, plays like Mother Courage. I mean, Mother Courage, again, you know, one of the, probably the most successful plays of the last century. It's about the Thirty Years' War. It's about a, a, a woman who loses her family in the Thirty Years' War and then carries on with her, um, with, 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 with her life. So... Um, I don't think you can really get a good understanding of Germany at all, certain German history or Berlin, until you do really understand quite what it, it went through. And of course, people think 400 years ago, well, it's now, you know, it's so long ago, it doesn't matter. But of course, you know, history doesn't work like that. Um, yeah, that's why why history matters so much. How important was the role of uh, the great 18th century Prussian king, Frederick the Great, in, <laughs> in the city's history? Uh, what, what impact does he, is, did, did, he, did he have on the on the sister's traje trajectory? Um, yeah, that's such, <laughs> such a fascinating question. Right. So in, in, in many ways profound in that because of what he made Prussia, his capital um, becomes far more important. Um, in a way, uh, his father, who he hated, um, Frederick Willem, um, the 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 first the the, the king um, well the great elector was an extraordinary character he in many ways actually laid the foundations for what Frederick II Frederick the Great actually um, achieved uh, and he is a rather neglected figure sadly in history whereas Frederick the Great had God knows how many biographies written about him his fathers had very few but that having said that it is Frederick II Frederick the Great who um, makes Prussia into a European power. So from that point of view, Berlin um, it benefits hugely. But on the other hand, Berlin is begins under Frederick in Frederick's reign. The contention between the Hohenzollerns and the Berliners gets begins to get quite extreme. 
So Frederick doesn't live in Berlin. He only hardly ever goes there. He lives in Potsdam, where he builds that wonderfully beautiful palace of Sanssouci and, and, and for the summer and the, the time palace for the winter. Um, he doesn't like Berlin. He thinks it's um, difficult and, and, and dangerous and the Berliners don't appreciate his culture. And the reason we don't appreciate his culture is that Frederick is effectively living a very old-fashioned life as a sort of European despot on the French model. Hugely influenced by Louis XIV, influenced by everything French. He speaks French. He thinks German's an ugly and difficult language. And he lives almost in this sort of bubble. And while he's living very agreeably, as Sanssouci, and having um, a lovely time with all his friends and his dogs, and um, I love going to Sanssouci. I spend hours, you know, there just sort of wandering around. And you really can get a wonderful feel of the man. But while he's doing that, Berlin is changing. Berlin is beginning to say, actually, we are a German city. German isn't such a bad language. Um, we're going to write in German, newspapers in German, plays in German, um, German literature. Um, uh, actually, you know, Frederick may um, love his operas uh, and Voltaire and that at, at Sans Souci, but um, we are we see a different a, di- a different Germany. We see a Germany that's proud of a German language, uh, and it's interestingly. Um, it is a Napoleonic invasion that comes, obviously, some years after Frederick's death, but rarely begins to allow that expression of German nationalism, of German culture, um, that like, gives rise to, 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 to Germanism, to, to, to that, that movement that, that will go on to create Germany under Bismarck. But Frederick the Great is he's an extraordinary character. Um, I mean, what's, what's wonderful about him is he so completely flies in the face of all the sort of accepted um, you know, norms of, 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 of 18th century Europe. So he's he 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 he's an atheist. Um, he's incredibly rude about religion. Um, he 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 permits complete sexual toleration. I mean, he's meant to have been um, homosexual himself. He may have been. Nobody really knows. He probably was, but it didn't really bother him. I mean, so what? His brother actively was. His brother Prince Henry, who lived in what's the house that's now the um, uh, the, the Berlin University um, on the Underton Linton. Um, and, and actually, this was when we're talking you know, 300 years ago in Europe, when these things were completely, you know, um, thought to be completely off the wall. And that's what's so attractive about the man. Um, yeah, he was a deeper, at heart, he was a despot. Um, he was, you know, slightly despised things Germanic. But he also was incredibly successful at making Prussia were into into a European power, um, and actually just being his own man. It came at a cost. Um, it came at a cost. Uh, and I, I, as I say, I think what would be rare, well, there's some really interesting characters like the great elector, um, and like um, Fred, Frederick the Great's grandfather, Frederick I, like his father, Frederick William I, who it would be lovely to know a bit more about. And that's why I try and write about them and about what they gave to Berlin, because in many ways their contribution is as great as Frederick II's. So by the end of the 19th century, Berlin is the capital of a unified Germany and is a, a truly global city. Yeah. I mean, how, how did that sit? How did that status sit with Berliners? Uh, initially, quite well, because it came with lots of money and it led to a huge economic um, commercial expansion. So, uh, if you like, what actually is the final part of the final act, if you like, in that drama 
is um, is Versailles is the sorry I mean the 1870 Versailles not 1918 obviously um, is is the defeat of the French is the proclamation of, of 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 the of the King of Prussia as Emperor of Germany uh, and huge reparations from the French wars and an enormous economic um, uh, sp- splurge. So the beginning of the 1870s are a time of enormous expansion in Berlin, of building, of people making vast fortunes. Like all booms, it's followed by a bust. Um, but the bust, actually, relative to the boom is quite small and it's got over quite quickly. And so during the end of the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, you do have this enormous economic expansion. Uh, and you have Berlin, which, of course, you know, people don't associate the city with it now after 945. But Berlin was both the political and the industrial capital of Germany. And it also became the financial capital. So Berenstrasse becomes, you like, the Wall Street, the city, the, 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 the city of, of, of Germany, and the major banks move there. So everything, you've got political and military, you've got commercial, you've got industrial power, um, and which makes it um, the, you know, the, the, the great one of the world's fastest growing cities. I think it's, I, I think actually Chicago may have been slightly quicker, but I mean, it, it, it grows hugely, it becomes the biggest European city, comes with enormous social problems. Uh, and that's, uh, go back to the 1830s, I was saying about Marx, those problems with these enormous expansion, inevitably, um, you know, there's a lot of people who, uh, who 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 get left out, and the industrial workers particularly um, do have, as they did in most big European cities at the end of the last century, um, quite a, a, a rough time of it. Uh, and interestingly, Berlin's politics becomes increasingly left-wing. So as you go through the 1890s um, up until 1914, uh, you see an increasing democratic democratization, if you like, sort of left-leaning tendency. And the Kaiser isn't actually that necessarily that popular. So there are huge demonstrations against his colonial policies. Um, the, 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 there is a feeling that the court is faintly ridiculous, but it is it, it, it sort of overdoes the militarism and the pomposity. And whereas you know there is a part of German society that actually plays to that and, and likes that, and the, the uniforms and the medals and the parades and and and, and all that, there's equally um, a, a, a part of particularly Berlin society that's beginning to laugh at that. Uh, and it's not helped when you have instances like um, <laughs> the Kaiser on a uh, on, on a shooting party with um, his his military cabinet and the head of his military cabinet um, actually uh, it, uh, ha- has a heart attack after dinner one night and everyone says this is very sad. It then transpires the head of the military cabinet was dancing in front of the Kaiser wearing nothing but a pink tutu. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, and then you have the famous, famous Eulenburg affair, and so you know the court is becoming seen as slightly, slightly ridiculous. And Berlin again, rather like that sort of antipathy to Frederick the Great. There's this sort of feeling that okay, we might be the Hohenzollern's capital, but actually we are our own people. We are Berlin. We are Berliners. Of course, all that changes horribly in 1914. That awful tragedy in 1914 which we still won't ever understand fully. Um, and the Kaiser is able to play on that very strong underlying sense of German nationalism, of German patriotism. Uh, and he makes a speech from the Berliner Schloss, from the balcony, which has been preserved in the new Schloss, or actually one very similar to it has. Um, and um, he, 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 he unites Germany, he unites all the political parties um, behind the war effort, um, which, of course, then 
causes such untold misery, not just to Berlin, but to all Germany. Finally, Barney, for um, those amongst mm. our listeners who are thinking about visiting Berlin, are there a couple of landmarks you could recommend where they could go to get a real feel for Berlin's extraordinary history? Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. Um, so many. How do I start, Spencer, on that? So, I mean, the first thing I would say, anybody thinking of going to Berlin is you must go there. It is quite simply the most fascinating city in Europe. I think I'm right in saying it's now the second most visited after London, funnily enough. Um, why is Berlin different? Because you go to most Berlin, um, so you go to most European cities and you go as a tourist. You are a visitor in somebody else's city. You go to Berlin, you are immediately a Berliner. You are even as a visitor. You, and so go back to what we said just now, the typical Berliner is somebody who's just arrived at the railway station. And Berlin never judges you. Berlin, you know, says, you're here, you're one of us, you're part of its extraordinary city, this extraordinary cultural experiment, this extraordinarily tolerant, uh, wonderful, lively place. Um, So I I think the the, the new centre, and I call it the new centre because the Berlin Schloss, the Humboldt Forum, as it's officially named, which is a rebuilt Schloss, uh, and that incomparable museum island. I mean, Berlin's museums are, are the world's, I mean, they're equivalent to London, um, and, and, and they're terribly well, um, everything is terribly well portrayed, as you'd expect in, in, in Germany. So the reopening of the, the Schloss, the Humboldt Forum, the museum island, has given you know, the city this physical heart that it lacked. So and anybody going there, I mean, you really, I would start there. Um, I personally love wandering around the old medieval um, part, and it's still very easy to follow that, um, to follow what, what, uh, how that was laid out. Very badly damaged in the war. A lot of it rebuilt um, by the communists, actually, by the GDR, and not unsympathetically. Um, I love going down the spray. I love going around the um, the Hohenzollern schlosses around the city. I mean, Potsdam, Sanssouci is just magic. The, the, there's, there's lots of other places around the city as well. And one of the things people forget about Berlin is it is the least crowded city in Europe. It's got a huge amount of open space. So the Grunewald um, is, um, it, it, it is almost unique. I mean, in how many other European cities do you get sort of herds of wild pigs? Um, and there is in the middle of a Grunewald, I mean, it's a short bus ride from the end of the... Um, uh, over the Kofirstendam, so the main shopping street, you can go out to 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 to, to the Jagdschloss Grunewald, which was built by the early Hohenzollerns. It's got the most incomparable collection of Kranach paintings in it. Um, funnily enough, not hardly visited. But what's so extraordinary to me is literally a short bus ride from the centre of the city. You can be wandering through the woods with um, lots of pigs and deer at all, and you can find this marvelous sort of jewel of an almost totally unaltered. Um, uh, 16th century um, um, hunting box, as it was, little sort of hunting schloss with a fantastic art collection. I mean, so, and then of course you've got the um, you've got the wider cultural scene. Um, so it's um, it, 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 it's it, it's a combination. The, the, the thing I would really say to anybody getting the place is just sort of relax into it. Don't necessarily have a great sort of list of things you want to tick off on your to-do list. Just go there, wander around it. Um, certainly start in the centre, go and visit these other places um, I've mentioned. But just sort of be be, be part of Berlin, be part of a life, um, and you'll begin to suck up this extraordinary atmosphere that the city, the, 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 the cities have for so long. 
That was Barney Whitespunner. Berlin, the story of a city, is published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colling.